0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast. Episode number 21, David Kay, communicating the results of forensic science examinations. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Cheng from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is David Kay. David is Associate Dean for Research, Distinguished Professor of Law, and Weiss Family Scholar at Penn State Law. David teaches evidence and criminal procedure, and he has long written in the areas of evidence, forensic science, and law and statistics. Among other things, David is the lead author on the new Wigmore volume on expert evidence. Today's podcast features a technical report that David did in collaboration with Cedric Neumann and Angeli Renadive. The report, entitled Communicating the Results of Forensic Science Examinations, emerged out of an effort between Penn State and NIST, the National Institutes for Standards and Technology. Most of the recent interest in forensic methods has focused on their validity and relatedly whether they can pass muster under legal standards of scientific reliability. David and his co-authors take on a different but related issue. Assuming valid forensic methods, how should experts present that material to the jury? The answers involve tough questions about statistical inference, jury competence, and ultimately the proper role of experts and juries in the justice system. David, it's a pleasure to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. As your report notes in the preface, this project grew out of a collaboration between NIST and Penn State. What did you hope to achieve?
1: Let me back up and talk about the genesis. NIST has been funding a series of working groups on different topics. I was involved in their first working group, which issued a report in 2012 on latent fingerprint identification that surveyed a lot of areas with respect to how to do that kind of identification, how to use it in court, how to obtain quality control, all those things. So it was a very broad report. A number of people in the area of forensic science for years now have been writing about and thinking about the best methods of interpreting or evaluating forensic science results in those areas. They cut across things like fingerprints and other forms of identification. A member of the forensic science program at Penn State, Cedric Neumann, and another individual uh, living here in Penn State, uh, Angeli Ranadive, had the idea of developing a set of best practices. In essence, recommendations such as those that had been done in the fingerprinting report, and they were both involved in that, with respect to the communication of results from forensic science studies applied to casework, those studies. Initially, just quantitative results. And and so they approached me, and I suggested broadening things to include qualitative statements related to findings. I kind of came along for the ride. He wrote a proposal to NIST for a working group. Penn State would convene, and they would fund, and we would produce a report with standards.
0: What was it about presentation or communication of forensic results that attracted your focus? So I think it's fair to say that most forensic work these days deals with the validity of the techniques. Here, you've chosen a different but no less important facet of the problem. Why was this your focus?
1: Well, it's my focus because I'm not a forensic scientist. I'm a lawyer, right, a law professor, and forensic science is the handmaiden of the law. Its results are going to be presented in the courtroom. They're also going to be presented to investigators who are operating within the legal system to act upon that will have great consequences on people. So clearly, the way these laboratory results are presented has an enormous impact and importance, and I've been writing about that kind of thing for some years.
0: In exploring these presentation methods, it seemed to me that you all looked at the problem through a specific lens, which is if an expert were trying to be objective or neutral for lack of a better term, but trying to do the right thing, that the expert would do those best practices. And in fact, even a practical perspective that you seemed willing to trade off technical precision with the ability to get the jury to understand you and to reach better results. Is that a fair characterization?
1: Yeah, I would say so. The report we envisioned would have multiple audiences, but a main audience would be forensic scientists themselves. The philosophy that we co-PIs, principal investigators, had was with the scientist as kind of a neutral presenter of information fairly and balancing the need to have sort of scientific accuracy with comprehensibility. So the scientists needed to consider in a balanced way the issues involved in the laboratory analysis and then communicate the results in a way that could be understood and that could involve a trade-off.
0: In your chapter reviewing presentation methods, you established something of a spectrum ranging from a forensic analyst just testifying about the features to likelihood ratios where the expert quantifies the weight of the information. Can you talk a little bit more about these various categories and some of their advantages and drawbacks?
1: Sure. And those categories really I lifted from the discussion of identification evidence in the Wigmore volume on expert evidence. So sitting back and just thinking about what goes on. The laboratory gets two samples. We'll call them a question sample and a known sample. This is the simplest possible situation, say uh, a latent fingerprint from a crime scene and a known print from a suspect. What do you do with that information? Well, the traditional thing, of course, is for the forensic analyst, in this case the fingerprint examiner, to look at the images very carefully, look at certain points where images are known to vary, and make some kind of subjective assessment of the degree of similarities. Is it the same print, or is it these images coming from different prints? So, that's the tradition, but if you were just to ask about this from the viewpoint of measurement and interpretations so as to purely psychometric or scientific process, the first step has to be some kind of determination of the features to look at. And there certainly have been cases that discuss the notion and have required the notion of an analyst presenting only the observations. With handwriting, for instance, Judge Nancy Gartner wrote an opinion which suggested or ask the experts to say not whose handwriting it was, but here are the features that I think are important and display them. So we could have this features only testimony. Judge Pollack in a famous fingerprinting case where he ended up reversing himself, but he did start out saying, that's what the analyst should be doing here and not the traditional bit of drawing a final ultimate, as it were, conclusion. So that way has a precedent for it, but it's it's quite unusual that courts would insist on it. However, There's no reason that an analyst couldn't do it. Now, there are obvious problems in that, what's the jury supposed to make of the similarities in the features? With some things, we might say, you know what? We can trust juries to reach some reasonable conclusions. If you get a shattered piece of glass and you can fit it back together again, I really don't think that the scientist knows anything more than the juror about the frequency with which you can reconstruct an object with which randomly selected pieces of glass would fit together. I mean, we all have some intuition on that. And in an area where the forensic scientist has nothing further to offer than elucidating what the data are, there's a strong argument that that's all that the analyst should do. So that's one category, as you said, features only testimony. Now, one can go beyond that as the next step upward and make all kinds of qualitative statements. I'll say, I'll call them qualitative ones. Statements like, oh, well, these two hairs are consistent with a common origin, or they're consistent with each other. Problems with that statement, how is the jury going to interpret it? Will it think it means same source, when all it really means is, they're not markedly different? Moving a step beyond those pretty minimal statements, an analyst might try to talk about the relative frequency with which objects would have this similarity problem is there's often a lack of data on that, but if there are data, one could introduce those, at least qualitatively, a statement like, oh, the hair fibers would rarely exhibit this degree of similarity in the general population, or there's not much chance of random similarity. Now, whether the data support that, I'm putting to the side, but these are just ways to describe things. Qualitatively, a third way would be just to speak to the evidence, to say that the evidence is much more probable to be observed if in fact the same source was present or was producing the evidence than if it came from different sources. And finally, there's that traditional source attribution testimony of this is the finger that produced this print, for example. There are analogs to all of that in quantitative statements. I won't go through all of them now because I know our time is probably short.
0: You and your co-editors seem not to prefer any of the methods that you just spoke about, but rather prefer the likelihood ratio approach. Why is the likelihood ratio approach preferable, and how do those work? So it's the more quantitative version.
1: Yeah, so I'll have to say that part of the report we're talking about was really a background chapter that I produced to inform the committee, the working group as a whole, and the working group as a whole never reached a resolution on this. But you're right, there are co-editors, and I think our view it's fair to say, does express a preference for what I call the weight of the evidence or the likelihood ratio approach, where the analyst just discusses how strongly the evidence points to a conclusion without the analyst himself or herself adopting a conclusion statement. So why did we like that idea? Not very original in the sense that this is a movement in forensic science that's been decades in the making to emphasize that kind of testimony. It is now the recommended approach of the European Association of Forensic Science Institutes, which are academic institutes that produce the evidence in European countries. And the reasons behind it? Well, there are a couple. One is that if you make match, no match type statements, there's a need to draw a sharp line to say, oh, these samples are distinguishable or they're indistinguishable or something like that. And the evidence as you approach that line is going to be treated, sort of theoretical point, but it's going to be treated in the same way when the jury hears it as evidence that is far away from the line. So an almost matching thing, it almost matches, but it can't say it does, is treated as having the same value as something that barely crosses the line, or you know, treated as having a radically different value as something that just crosses the line. So there's that arbitrariness or cliff-edge effect, as it's sometimes called. That's one problem which is solved by talking about the weight of the evidence or likelihood ratios as an implementation of that concept. The other reason to prefer it is, I think, a kind of legal philosophical position, uh, maybe scientific, but what is the expert's job here? Is the expert the decision maker? Or is the jury, is the expert's job to present what the evidence is worth to the jury and let it make the decision? If that's your philosophy, which has a lot of support uh, conceptually, then the idea of talking about what the evidence supports and how much it supports it and its relative likelihoods is a lot more congenial to the desired role of the expert than is the traditional, I am the expert, this is my finding, believe it or not. I mean, you have to believe it because I'm the expert.
0: Be a little more concrete for me about these likelihood ratios. Can you give me an example for the audience about how it might work?
1: Let me talk about something where it actually is used in court already. And that is in parentage testing cases. And this could be civil or criminal, but I'll put it in a criminal context. Imagine a case in which a body is discovered. This is actually a real case, a burned body of a child. And the question is whether or not a man who's thought to be the father is in fact the father of a child. He's thought to have killed the child. And the mother is known, but it's not known whether he really is the father, okay? So what's the likelihood ratio here? There are genetic tests from the remnants of the infant, genetic tests on the suspect and the mother. The genetic tests are consistent with the mother's, I'll use the word consistent, being the mother. Given that, as she said, she is the mother and this is the infant, then one can ask, given the genetic traits that the father has, what is the probability that he would transmit those traits that he has, the relevant traits to the child, because the child only inherits half of the father's traits, the way genetics works. And what's the probability that a, uh, let's say, randomly selected man would transmit the traits? If those two probabilities are the same, then the the genetic evidence is of no value in distinguishing the father from everybody else who might have been the father, and consequently, its likelihood ratio would be one, just as likely either way. That ratio would normally, if someone really is the father, be much higher, however, than the randomly selected person because there are a lot of genetic traits to look at, some of them are relatively rare in the population, and it would be odd to just see them by coincidence. So we get two numbers in these cases. The likelihood, that is the probability of the evidence given that this guy really is the father compared to the probability of the evidence given that, let's say, a randomly selected man is the father. The ratio is the likelihood ratio, but it doesn't even have to be presented as a ratio if you've got the numbers.
0: The last part of your chapter talks about data uncertainty, and here you note that typically the forensic statistics that are provided at a trial, like this likelihood ratio we were just talking about, assume flawless processes, that you didn't have any lab contamination in this case or anything like that. Jay Kohler in an earlier podcast discussed that lab error, in fact, effectively swamps everything else, or at least in his opinion, lab error often swamps any of these more subtle distinctions that you have either in calculating likelihood ratios or random match probabilities, which we often have in DNA. Do you agree with him on this? And if so, should the focus be on lab error rather than the likelihood ratios or the random match probabilities?
1: This is a much debated point. I certainly agree with Jay that in the context of asking how probative something is just by looking at the rarity of the trait. In other words, in the typical single-sample, single-contributor DNA case, if one is trying to estimate how rare a DNA type in the population is, that type will be, with a complete profile, extremely rare. So one can be fairly certain that it's improbable to see that result, absent something like an identical twin, if, in fact, everything is done right in the laboratory. Now, if you introduce that number alone, it could be misjudged, and I suppose the jury, as a psychological matter, might omit the fact that, uh, wait a minute, is it really true that these genotypes are the ones that are identified by the laboratory? Technical terms, the numerator of the likelihood ratio is not one, and maybe we could build that in if we could know how to do it and, and what numbers to put in for, for, for a known laboratory error rate and what it would be in this particular case. There are real problems with trying to figure out what it would be in this particular case. And Jay would argue that, well, then you should consider a base rate. So let me put it this way. I agree 100% that you need to consider that the jury needs to realize that there's more to this test result than the one number that might be presented in the traditional way that DNA evidence has been presented. That leads us to the question of at what stage and how should that be presented? Should the analyst have a requirement of when presenting the result also saying that there is of course a chance of laboratory error and either I can't quantify that for you, but it's been known to happen, or there are studies and here's what the known error rate is. Or should we use the existing legal system in which Prosecutors don't want to bring that evidence up first, the possibility of error, but the defense is free to do that. From the scientific perspective, I'd say the scientists ought to be concerned with the uncertainty of results, and uncertainties can arise from many areas, and so a laboratory report should note, of course, this number we have produced is conditional on this assumption no error, and and then say something about that. That's the minimum that we should be doing. And then lawyers should be reading these reports and be aware of them. I would go beyond that and say that if this working group got to having a good standard, I would have proposed as part of the standard the idea that the expert discuss error at the outset.
0: So this leads me to my last question, which is really about implementation. And you're talking about experts behaving in accord with standards. What's the way that you envision these standards being enforced? Should there be some kind of uniform, judicially mandated presentation method, like a rule of evidence? Or is the answer some kind of jury instruction, where you tell the jury about things? Or is it really about the certification of the experts and the process of admitting those experts?
1: I don't think it's about certification of experts or the process of deciding who's an expert. I think it's about creating incentives that will result in the uh, relatively complete and fair presentation of critical evidence. One way to do that is to have professional standards as to what experts are expected to do as a matter of their scientific professional obligations. Another way is to have courts develop rules, as you say, for presenting evidence. And I think we probably need both. And there are efforts to do both that are ongoing.
0: Well, David, it was great to have a chance to talk to you about your recent work in forensic evidence. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ed.
0: As my conversation with David suggests, at least from a scientific or statistical perspective, the way in which forensic experts traditionally and for the most part currently present their results is both antiquated and misleading. Telling the jury that forensic evidence is consistent is woefully incomplete, because it offers no guidance to the jury on how probative that evidence is. Broken glass found at a crime scene may be consistent with glass in the defendant's house, but that consistency is nearly worthless if the glass is common to all windows or bottles. At the same time, telling the jury that forensic evidence is a match, essentially concluding that the defendant was the source, is overselling, as in most cases, no such unique identification can be justified. Out of all this comes the likelihood ratio, which academics have long advocated to be the preferred way to express the strength of evidence. The problem is that likelihood ratios, which are commonly numerical, may be difficult for jurors to process, though some have developed creative ways to present this kind of information. In addition, There remains the issue of whether these likelihood ratios should incorporate lab error rates, as David and I discussed. Ultimately, it seems that this is an area that almost cries out for judicial guidance and regulation. Presented improperly, forensic results are easily misinterpreted and confusing, while still having a very powerful persuasive effect. This kind of evidence is precisely what the evidentiary rules have historically tried to regulate in order to aid the jury in its fact-finding mission. Some might say that the work of David and his colleagues is thus not only welcomed, but also long overdue. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Randstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.